Hello, welcome to episode two of the new season of the Wilderness Medic podcast. Today I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Shauna Pandya, who is uh, a scientist astronaut candidate. She's also a physician, an aquanaut, um, she skydives, she uh, has also uh, got a black belt in taekwondo. And essentially, she does lots of really cool things, and it's going to be uh, really good to have a talk to her about uh, space medicine in today's episode. Welcome to the Wilderness Medic Podcast. Check out our website at www.thewildernessmedic.com. Expedition resources, wilderness medicine blog, and much more. Hi, welcome to uh, episode two of the new season of the Wilderness Medic Podcast. Uh, today, I'm really pleased to be joined by uh, Dr. Sean Napandia uh, from Edmonton in Canada. Thanks for taking some time out of your day to join me where we're going to be sort of talking all things space medicine. Yeah, it's my extreme pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And also any excuse to stay indoors and avoid the cold is always welcome. So it's my pleasure to be here. That that sounds fair enough. And so yeah, I think we're going to have sort of a whistle stop talking a bit about space medicine, some of the exciting things that, that you've been doing. Um, and I suppose what the future might hold for for space travel. And uh, I suppose, given the the events recently, it would uh, it'd be rude not to mention the recent uh, Mars landing. Yes. Oh gosh, with perseverance, ingenuity, um, it was. You know, it's it's hard not to get excited about any aspect of space. And then one as dramatic uh, as the seven minutes of terror with entry, descent, and landing. Uh, you know, we're all always excited when something that high risk goes well. So congratulations to JPL, to the Perseverance team, and also to the UAE and China for their recent successful um, uh, Mars exploration landers and missions. Yeah, it was very interesting uh, watching the video of, as you know, as the parachute got deployed and you could see the, uh, the surface of the planet kind of getting closer and closer and then then they had touched down and sort of the socially distant uh, celebrations in the control room and things. It was was great, great to see, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, and that's, you know, despite the pandemic right now, it's with, you know, things like NASA social events with, for example, the Korea One demo launch, um, you know, with, uh, with watch parties, with just private chats with friends. Like, it's still so easy to get excited about space, Um with the, which which was the Israel mission, was it, was it Chandrayaan last year? You know, getting that excitement and then experiencing um, the the joint um, disappointment when the when the lander didn't make its mark. You know, it, we still have these shared experiences in the space community. And, you know, we, we experience success and disappointment together. So I think that's one of the beauties of the space and also the space medicine community, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And... Um... So I, I was looking at uh, looking at some of the stuff you've done, and you, you've spent some time, admittedly not on Mars, but in, in a sort of simulated Mars in, environment in uh, in the Mars Desert Research Station, haven't you? Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And you know, for those who aren't familiar, um, so th- by way of background, space is hard, expensive, and high risk, and so we want to be as prepared as possible when we go to any type of uh, human space uh, flight environment. And so the way we prepare is by um, practicing in analog environments. And what we mean by analog environments is that they're analogous in some way to the spaceflight environment, whether it's 
partial gravity, whether it's remote and resource limited, whether it's isolated and confined, whether it's some combination of all of that. And the Mars Desert Research Station, or MDRS, is an example um, of an, such an analog environment. I like to call it real life on fake Mars. You're, you're living in this Mars habitat in the middle of the Utah desert. It looks like something out of, uh, you know, Tatooine and Star Wars. Mm. Um, and, you know, you're, you really are living as if you were on Mars, if you want to go out on EVA or ex, um, extravehicular activity uh, on an exploratory or scientific activity, you have to suit up. Um, you take your, your rovers. Um, you're living with the crew, crew dynamics, leadership, teamwork, followership are super, super critical to mission success. And I've been lucky enough to have completed two rotations by now, once um, as crew medical officer and once as crew commander. That's, that's really interesting. And how long would you would you be based there for, for each of those uh, sort of deployments, I suppose? Yeah, so it depends on the analog and what you're doing. Um, so my MDRS rotations have been two weeks at a time, and that's pretty standard for MDRS. Um, for anyone familiar with the analog world, there's analog, analog sites that are cropping up all over the world now. Um, so High Seas was first a Martian and now a lunar analog based on the big island in Hawaii. Um, right now they're doing two week missions, but at the start they were doing four to eight months to one year missions. Um, and I've had friends who've gone through those and, you know, they, their, their stories are, are incredible. Um, Hira is the NASA Johnson Space Center, uh, analog. And as, as I'm sure your listeners are learning pretty quickly, everything in the space world is an acronym. Hera stands for Human Exploration Research Analog, and they started with two-week, 30-day, uh-huh. now 45-day missions, and um, the selection is exactly what they would look for in astronaut candidates in terms of health, teamwork, compatibility, and the operational schedule is predetermined by the NASA team and research there, and it's very go, go, go. Um, that one's open to only U.S. citizens, but I've had many, many friends and colleagues who uh, participated, and you know their, their, their stories are exactly what you'd expect out of an, an extreme in environment um although in this case the extreme environment is a simulated um spacecraft in a hangar at johnson space center mm. yeah and i guess for the for the for the duration of sort of up to a year that's that's pretty extreme stuff and um i take it the uh the sort of the simulation is sort of true to life and it's pretty confined is it what sort of uh what would a day the daily life be like if you were in in a, in a simulated space flight for a year yeah, so um, with every analog is a little bit different. With a place like um, the Mars Desert Research Station or High Seas, um, you know, it's it is your mission is what you bring to it. The fidelity of the simulation is what you bring to it. Traditionally, I've been lucky enough to work with crews that have been, you know, very very professional. Um, really believe in the fidelity of the simulation. And so you're creating, your, you're bringing your own science, you're bringing your own activities, uh, you're setting your own operational schedule, you're, you're setting your own objectives, you're deciding and agreeing those um, as a team. Um, and so, you know, you decide your wake up, your lights out time, the activities of the day. And the most critical part about any operational environment is um, the real-time decision-making. You know, you can have as many plans as you want, but you have to be fluid, you have to roll with the punches, and you have to have, have you have to have plans B, C, E, E, F, and all the way to Z. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you know, um, I think this really hit home for me. I think one of my favorite analogs, and it's hard to say because I've had so many wonderful experiences with fantastic teammates, but I was lucky enough to do 
um, an underwater mission called the Neptune Mission. Yet another acronym, which stands for Nautical Experiments in Physiology, Technology, and Underwater Exploration. Um, this was a five-day underwater mission with four other crewmates from the U.S. and Canada. And um, we we were very, very uh, mindful of our schedule, of the logistics of the operation operations. Um, but we were also not afraid to roll with punches, um, you know, move a dive when it needed to happen, schedule another dive when um, that seemed to be the morale boost the team needed, um, you know, uh, change our, our science and uh, outreach schedule and make it a little bit interchangeable to just keep up the, the flow, the pace and crew morale. So, um, you know, that was the perfect example of not being afraid to, to go with the flow um, and have a backup plan. Yeah, definitely. And for, I suppose, for my own sort of understanding, so was the purpose of going to an underwater environment because there are physiological similarities or was it sort of partly uh, just being in, you know, somewhere where you were fairly inaccessible with uh, the team members and, and looking more at the sort of human factors and, and that side of things? Yeah, that's a great question. In our particular case, because we were at the Jules Undersea Lodge, located at 20 feet underwater, there weren't many physiological changes to be aware of. We still felt minute ones. We noticed fun things like when we brought marshmallows down from the surface, they arrived compressed. Um, so you saw little changes <laughs> like that. Um, but anyone who might be familiar with hyperbaric and dive medicine um, knows that at 20 feet underwater, you're essentially at surface pressure. So the definition of an aquanaut is being and breathing at the ambient um, surrounding uh, pressure for 24 hours. And so you still get the aquanaut designation, but at this depth, you don't need to decompress and um, mitigate dive injury um, for a set period of time. Um, so uh, the, the, the corollary to that. So, so in answer to your question, we focused on, you know, isolation, confinement, being inaccessible, mm -hmm. um, having to suit up for our, our version of EVA, which was having to, you know, don our dive gear and, and scuba equipment. Yeah. Um, but in terms of physiological changes, those become more relevant at the, um, uh, Aquarius brief base, uh, where NASA runs its NEMO or NASA extreme environment mission operations mission. Uh, so it's only, it's still located in the Florida Keys. It's only 13 miles away from the Jules undersea lodge, but the depth is a little bit greater. So it sits at about 50 feet underwater and, um, NASA crews, astronauts, researchers will go down there for eight to 16 days at a time um, to practice all manner of science, technology demonstration, EVAs, um, suit and, and um, protocol uh, operations testing. Um, but the, the, the real world impact of being at saturation at 50 feet is now you actually have to decompress for a set period of time um, once you've been in saturation. And so just to quickly explain um, the risk of dive injury is that when you're in saturation, um, nitrogen, nitrogen bubbles will dissolve into your, your blood. And if you don't decompress at a set rate, if they, these bubbles will come out of saturation too quickly and lodge in places that are bad at the very, you know, uh, on one end of the spectrum in the bones yeah. and soft tissues causing uh, joint pain uh, and, and bruising. But in the worst case scenario, lodging in the brain and lungs causing um, seizures, coma, even death or a pulmonary embolism. And so at the, at, the Aquarius brief base, you have to decompress for 15 hours and 47 minutes before you can return to the surface. And to give you a comparison of how remote that is while only being 50 feet away from the surface is that from the ISS, if there's an emergency from the International Space Station, 
uh, you can be down in Kazakhstan uh, by emergency evacuation on the Soyuz on the order of hours, 3.5 hours at the very least, probably a little bit more depending um, on what the operational schedule and orbit um, is like. But you can actually get back to Earth more quickly from the ISS than you can from Aquarius Reef Base. So it really is. That's, a, that's, that's amazing. That's really, that's really <laughs> that's quite, one quite of my amazing. So, yeah, that's one of my favorite huh. like, mind-blowing facts. Yeah, so you can get from the ISS back. So say you had, I don't know, whatever, some, some medical emergency, you could be seeing, seeing a doctor with under four hours. Yeah, in you know the best case in the best case scenario, absolutely. Yeah. And so it's huh. you know you really have to to take that into account when you go to to Aquarius. Um, things can get a little bit dicey pretty quickly. Yes, uh, but I guess obviously, um, like all things, obviously prior preparation and um, to try not because I imagine it's it's not a cheap uh, thing to do to get back down to Earth that quickly. So I suppose. Um, you know, preparing for all these eventualities as, as much as you can is, is probably a better thing, isn't it? Absolutely. And um, space and any operational environment is all about contingencies. Um, you know, it's always about playing that what if game, what can go wrong, what can go right, what is most likely to happen. And, you know, there's I'm sure there's a lot of physicians, a lot of emergency physicians listening to this podcast. And it's exactly the way we think, you know, in emergency medicine. Um, you know, those for those who love love space and, and astronautics, um, in Chris Hadfield's book, so that the famous Canadian astronaut, former ISS commander, he talks about the power of negative thinking. And you know, that's exactly what you what you want to think about in any high risk operational environment. You want to ask what can go wrong, and then you want to mentally prepare and rehearse for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose taking it back a bit, so. Uh, I, I was wondering how you sort of got interested in, in space medicine. Is it something you, you've always wanted to do since you were young? Or I suppose how it'd be interesting to tell some of the listeners sort of how you've got to sort of where you are at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think like a lot of kids growing up, I just wanted to be an astronaut, um, you know, and that was influenced by a few factors. Um, I loved watching the night sky. My parents were big into camping. They would take me and my brother to these amazing night skies, you know, away from the city lights where the spiral arm of the Milky Way just leaps out at you and you can't help but be inspired. Even at a young age, you don't necessarily know the science of what, you know, these burning balls of gas and energy actually mean, but you know enough to know that, wow, this is incredible and I want to be a part of it. Mm. Um, that was the first, you know, Hey, I love space. And then I grew up in the 90s when the second ever Canadian Space Agency astronaut selection took place. And this was significant because Dr. Roberta Bondar, the first female Canadian astronaut, flew. And I was so inspired by that. And that actually really impacted me in a lot of um, uh, concrete ways. And so, you know, I thought, okay, she's Canadian, I'm Canadian, she's female, I'm female. So now all I need to do yeah. is go be a physician, neuroscientist, astronaut, and that'll be my path. And literally, that's what um, made me choose a neuroscience undergrad in high school. That's what made me choose the, the path towards medicine. Um, and, you know, <laughs> and then along the way, I realized that, hey, not only can you pursue, you know, this path, but in order to keep people healthy and safe in space, um, there's actually a branch of study dedicated to that called space medicine. And that's when I realized you can blend your passions for space and medicine 
uh, into a single field. And that really um, led me to where I am today. Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating. So just a, just a small tick list: neu- neuroscience uh, doctor and astronaut. Um, <laughs> and I suppose space medicine as a as a field is is quite a, a. I suppose it has to be by nature quite a generalist specialty. Yeah, and so when we talk about space medicine um, and and aviation, aerospace medicine, um, flight surgeons, uh, it's it's a very it's a very mixed bag. Um, so when you look at who works as a flight surgeon at NASA, they have urologists, they have general practitioners, they have emergency physicians, they have general um, internal medicine um, specialists. Um, and so, and then, you know, in, in a lot of countries, uh, actually in most countries, to, to, for example, flight certify someone as a pilot, you need the, the designation in aerospace medicine. Um, so yeah. that, you know, that's one field of study, but to contribute to the research, um, to contribute to protocols, to testing, which is what I do, um, simply you have to say, I'm passionate towards this. I'm dedicated towards this. Um, you know, let's, let's create protocols. Let's, let's work in, um, in these, um, analog environments, whether it's parabolic flight and, and microgravity or isolation confinement and let's let's help um, contribute to the body of knowledge um, in human uh, spaceflight and exploration. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And, and, and so then from, from how did you then progress to become an astronaut candidate? Then? Yeah, so this is um, a really awesome time to be alive if you love space and astronautics. Um, so once upon a time, the only path towards space was through a governmental space agency. Um, whether we're talking about NASA, European Space Agency, Space Agency, astronaut selections. And now with the rise of commercial space and suborbital um, space uh, vehicles, we're seeing opportunities for other paths to space. Um, you know, whether it's as a space tourist with one of the commercial fl- uh, flight providers or as a researcher. Um, and so... That is how I got involved with um, Project Possum, which is yet another acronym in the space world, stands for Polar Suborbital Science of the Upper Mesosphere. And basically, the initial mandate of this program focused on aeronomy and the science of noctilucent clouds in the upper mesosphere. Briefly, this is a cloud that is thought to be a um, marker of climate change. It's fairly new on the meteorological record. It's um, become more prevalent since the late 1800s starting to exist at lower latitudes, and it's thought to be because of increased byproducts of CO2 breakdown, um, increasing uh, ice crystal formation and seeding in the upper mesosphere at about 80 to 100 kilometers, thereby creating these clouds. And so we want to know more about what these clouds are, where they exist, and so we need more data. Traditionally, it's been through ground observation, satellite observation, um, balloon uh, uh, balloons, and um, uh, aerial imagery. And so um, the mandate, the new science being proposed with Possum was, well, what if we sent scientists, astronaut candidates, citizen scientists up to um, get more resolu- more uh, photography and video resolution and atmospheric sampling and thermal sampling um, in real time on a suborbital flight? And that was the initial mandate uh, of the program. Uh-huh. Um, and that's, you know, it's a happy byproduct of going above the 100-kilometer Kármán line is, hey, you get the astronaut designation. 
that's where we started. Um, so we haven't flown yet on the Noctilus and Cloud missions, but we've done a lot of cool things along the way um, since we started, including test, testing spacesuits with the Canadian Space Agency um, in parabolic flight, in zero G, in water, um, uh, landing in emergency egress scenarios. Uh, and it's been an incredible ride along the way. And knowing that we get to contribute to to astronautics exploration um, and and citizen science is is a pretty gratifying feeling. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's really good, and and I suppose citizen science is, is is quite a quite a cool thing in general, isn't it? Just the idea of being able to to kind of contribute to these uh, larger projects and things. I think that's that's really good, and. Um, I suppose you mentioned a, a few uh, a few interesting things just then. Um, certainly, testing uh, spacesuits in, in microgravity sounds sounds really interesting. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so far, I've been keeping it quite high level, but um, let's let's get into the needs uh, into the into the weeds here. Um, so when we talk about spacesuits, we talk about IBA and EBA spacesuits. Uh, IBA stands for intravehicular activity, and as we previously talked about, EBA is the extravehicular activity. And so the distinction is an IBA spacesuit is like having a mini portable um, life support system that you that you wear um, in case, for example, the atmospheric control or the life support system in your spacecraft fails. Um, and so that's the first type of spacesuit that we started testing. Um, and basically, as we talked about, space is hard, space is risky, space is expensive. So you don't mm. want the first time you test anything to be in space. You want a stepwise fashion of making a technology space ready. And the acronym that we used to talk about these is TRL or technology readiness level. Um, You're right. There's certainly, there's certainly you need you need a sort of a, a small guidebook, then you like with the glossary to work out what, what all the acronyms are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, TRL one, I kind of liken to maybe a doodle that you've scribbled on the back of a bar napkin. And then TRL nine at the other end of the spectrum is space worthy. And so you, you increase the technology readiness level or space worthiness of something in step. And that's what we've been doing with this IVA spacesuit um, made by this company called Final Frontier Design. And uh, we've been testing them in subsequent parabolic flights over the past half decade now. Um, and basically over each subsequent test where, you know, we're, we're testing things that are simple at first, like range of motion in the suit, in, in range of motion in the suit. Uh, fine motor movement. Can you can you operate a busy board and buttons and joysticks like you would have to in an actual um, suborbital flight? And then can you do that with the visor down and the suit pressurized? Um, you know what is what is the interference like with um, biomonitoring devices? Um, so one cool thing we did in 2018 was in partnership with the Canadian Space Agency, we actually tested the the biomonitor device. Um, that measured vital signs that eventually flew to the International Space Station with David Saint-Jacques a few months later. Um, and so that's, you know, th- that's some of the testing that we've done. And, you know, for those who are wondering, like, how do you, how do you get zero G without ever, ever leaving the Earth? Um, so you do that in what, we, what is colloquially known as the vomit comet, formerly known as parabolic flight. And basically you're flying in an aircraft we traditionally fly at 17,000 feet. So that's much lower than a commercial airliner, which flies at 39,000 feet. Um, and you're flying in a parabola, you're accelerating upwards at 2G and then you're leveling out and then you're falling at the same rate as the plane for uh, 20 to 30 seconds at a time. And it's just like when you're descending in an elevator, when the elevator goes down, you feel your stomach lift and you're weightless for a second. And so 
in those 20 to 30 seconds of microgravity, you can actually make, make productive use of that time and get your maneuvers done, test the technology, test, test the technology that you want to test and get the data that you need to. Um, and so we've been doing this with the, the suit since 2015, and we've also been actually adding more and more scientific payloads all along the way. So it's been, been a good five years, six years now for science. That's, that's really that's really interesting. Um, and are the are the suits that you're sort of helping to develop more for uh, sort of astronauts who are going to the um, to the ISS, or, or are they more going to be used for sort of I suppose if say I wanted to go to space hypothetically in the future, are they the kind of thing that uh, space tourists might also use? Yeah, that's a great question. And so. Um, uh, the a lot of the final frontier design work has actually been funded through NASA contracts, NASA opportunities, um, and so there's obviously an interest for, for NASA um, for developing. Uh, it started with the gloves, and then eventually asked different aspects of the suit. Um, when it comes to commercial spaceflight and spaceflight participants and space tourists, the the general stance amongst um, the suborbital commercial providers is that they want this to be quote so so safe your grandmother could fly um, and so they very much want to adhere to the shirt sleeve environment where you know it's just like being on a plane so for now for space like okay. participants and space tourists uh, I haven't seen a plan to integrate IVA suits uh, so right now this is more focusing on um, you know the the um, the non-tourist side and uh so that's the IVA side and then with the EVA suit that's the suit that you see on spacewalks and on Apollo um uh sorties um uh that that suit is being tested for you know what can you do what can you do on a spacewalk what can you do on a on a geological um exploratory mission yeah okay and and I suppose how uh... How far do you think we are away from sort of commercial space travel? There's been some some exciting stuff with the SpaceX project. I was only amazed watching watching that um, that whole process and how the uh, mm-hmm. you know the the uh, spare bits of rocket then landed back perfectly on on the boats in the middle of the ocean and how it was all mm-hmm. so smoothly run. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think uh, you know how, how far do you reckon we are away from? Uh, from having uh, you know tourists yeah. admittedly with a lot of money going, going, going up there um the, the the flippant answer is any moment now but that's also been the the answer <laughs> since 2009 that being said i truly feel we're currently at an inflection point because now it's not just virgin galactic there's spacex there's blue origin there's axiom there's the recent announcement with the inspiration for space um contest with saint jude's um, that's, you know, uh, four private citizens are going to fly with Axiom um, uh, for or, an orbital mission. Um, and so this is this is the time like this, you know, the more the more seeds you plant, the more likely it is at least one of them is going to flourish. And so the competition really is heating up. I am obviously following this with a lot of keen interest um, and. Uh, you know, there's there's so many opportunities here, even even for um, for so not just for tourists, but for human tended payloads and space researchers, and even using suborbital flight for um, non-human tended payloads. So I'm currently working, for example, with a 
um, high school team to develop a payload for for suborbital flight that um, uh, will bring back some pretty good science on um, uh, polyurethane foam and how it works in space and how it how its material properties differ from um, uh, earth-based uh, earth manufactured foam in one G. Yes, that's uh, yeah. You can do lots of interesting experiments, and I suppose the the interesting thing will be, I suppose, for the first uh, large groups of of people going up on a, on a more commercial thing, will be um, sort of the research data that you can can get from that. Because obviously, I, I imagine up till now, the majority of um, astronauts who who you know people who go up to the ISS, they're sort of in their physiological prime, if you like, in that. They're kind of a, a, a you know a biased pre-selected group of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd obviously want to do that a little bit if you were send. You didn't, maybe you wouldn't want to send you know your grandma up, up to space. But I suppose it will also give a, a wealth of more information potentially. Exactly, that's exactly it. I've I've long said that being a governmental space agency astronaut is akin to winning a genetic lottery. Um, the the path towards becoming, you know, a NASA or CSA astronaut is littered with um, the, the hopes and dreams of phenomenal candidates who have been medically disqualified, whether it's through a disc herniation, whether it's through um, uh, asymptomatic kidney stone. Um, and so the, the promise of commercial space um, plans to make space more accessible to, to all manner of folks, we have data from centrifuge studies um, suggesting that folks uh, in the age, age ranges of 19 to 89 have fared well in hypergravity environments. With the with the Axiom St. Jude's Space for Inspiration um, contest, they fi- they announced yesterday that their their third or their second crew member would be a female physician assistant who had bone cancer as a child and also has a has a prosthesis in um in her lower leg so she will not only be one of the youngest people to fly to space but she will be the first person with a prosthesis to fly into space and that was not previously possible and so when we think about the potential of what it means to open up these space frontier not just to the healthiest not just to the scientists the engineers the pilots but to you know anyone with um, an interest in space and to the artists and the entrepreneurs and even athletes, you know, we're, we're opening up a whole new platform and frontier for, for humans to, to explore and create and, and build. And that's incredibly exciting. Yeah, that is really exciting, isn't it? Um, and I suppose, yeah, as, as you say, there's, uh, there's that, there's that huge potential. And I suppose they'd, they'd be supported by, uh, Doctors on, on the ground usually sort of using a telemedical sort of service, I guess, would it? Yeah. So um, each of the major commercial pro- each of the major commercial um, suborbital providers have have you know very um, uh, experienced uh, chief medical officers with with uh, incredible pedigrees, and so a lot of them had experience either as NASA flight surgeons um, uh, or on the triage physician recovery team from the shuttle era, you know, that's the case with Virgin, that's the case with SpaceX. Mm. Um, and so they know what they're doing. Um, 
they, I, I, I would love to hear more about, you know, the, the protocols and the, the operations, but, you know, the, the heritage of where these folks come from is, is extremely, um, you know, it's extremely trusted. And so they, they, they very much know what they're doing when it comes to, to the aerospace operations. Yes, it's, it's very interesting. So I was I was looking at some. I think this was it was maybe a few years ago now, but I I remember reading about. Um, I think it was an astronaut on the ISS who who ended up having a a, a blood clot, but in mm-hmm. his in his jugular jugular vein, they were doing some research, um, and I think part of that involved him just having a routine ultrasound scan mm-hmm. uh, on his neck, um, and then he was I think he was a few months into a six month mission. And he didn't get the uh, you know the three hours to Kazakhstan treatment. He he instead had a chat with um, I guess a hematologist or, or mm-hmm. a specialist at least back down on Earth, and they had that dilemma of what do we do now, which was quite interesting. Yes, and so we've talked about how safe space is for a limited flight profile and suborbital flight on the order of minutes in zero g, um, but we haven't talked about how scary space flight can be, especially for extended duration. And space is essentially trying to kill us. And despite having data from decades of human space flight, the surprises keep coming. So we know from decades of, of human space flight that we experience alterations in bone health and muscle physiology and fluid shift, but we're still learning more with every decade. Um, you know, in the past decade and a little bit, we learned about the occurrence of the Space flight, sorry, the space adaptation neuroocular syndrome, which results in increased intracranial pressure and changes in vision and increased pressure on the optic nerve. And this seems to be more of an effect with a long duration space flight of over 30 days. So now we have to say, okay, what does what does this mean if we're planning on going to the moon for the Artemis missions and for Mars? And mm-hmm. um, how serious is this? How do we mitigate this? What's the minimum amount of gravity needed to mitigate this? And then the most recent surprise, as you talked about, was at the end of 2019, lo and behold, hey, there's a blood clot. Well, that's slightly terrifying. Um, and, you know, how how significant is this? Has this been happening all along and we just didn't know? Is, is space a, a hypercoagulable state um, when it comes to um, uh, blood clot formation? Um you know, what is the protocol? Do we need to put people on low molecular weight heparins for VT prophylaxis? Uh, there's so many questions. Um, and, you know, these are a lot of things that we need to answer as we seriously talk about going to the moon, Mars, and beyond. And then the other part of that is we suddenly don't have that several-hour evacuation capability to get to Kazakhstan. So how do we increase the in-situ um, autonomy with respect to operational space medicine? Um, When you're on the moon, it's three to five days to evacuate. When you're on Mars, it's six to nine months, one way to get back to Earth. And so suddenly you're looking at not just institute treatment, but and not just prolonged field care, but ultimately super prolonged field care. And these are decisions and discussions that need to be had um, all along the way. Yeah, it's a a long evacuation time, isn't it? Um, but yeah, but it is it is very exciting at the same time, isn't it? Definitely. Um, and there are some other interesting things I was I was looking at just when uh, sort of preparing for this podcast about um, uh, the twins, the NASA's uh, twin study, which yes. is which is really interesting. 
Yes, and this was published in Science, I believe, in 2017 as a summary overview, and it was a very, very collaborative um, study. And essentially, they took, um, you know, the Kelly twins are naval pilots. They are both astronauts. Um, one, I believe, was retired and stayed on Earth while the other went to space for a year. And they looked at everything mm-hmm. from cognition, performance um, at the macro level to the nitty-gritty of DNA, RNA, methylation, proteomics, metabolism, um, what the molecular genetics was doing, what the telomeres were doing. They found that telomeres surprisingly lengthened in space. What are the implications of that? Um, and so space is like, space and space medicine is a box of chocolates. You know, the surprises keep coming uh, and there's there's no dearth of questions um, to, to be answered. Yeah, that's very interesting because so you could, theoretically, if you went and lived, lived up on... On the moon, or, or maybe in the, in the space station, you could live live for longer as long as you. Uh, so your telomeres would get longer, but you'd obviously have to make sure you didn't get osteoporosis. So it's supposed to be a bit of a yeah. Bit of a and there's also you know the other hazards of of um, space flight. So um, we call it the Big Five. Um, one of those includes radiation. The further we get away from Earth, mm. um, especially out of the protective confines of the Van Allen belt. So when we're on the moon and beyond, we have to worry about increased radiation and protection from that. Um, you know, can we can we safely live in above ground habitats or do we need to be relegated to living under meters of regolith for protection? We know from um, decades or what, what we know from the, the biomedical results of the Apollo missions is that uh, the regolith, the lunar dust, was um, a major pain. It clogged up suit joints. It was skin and respiratory irritants. Um, you know, it was... Uh, it's it's uh, something to be mindful of um, when we talk about lunar um, and and surface operations. Um, and you know the the communications delay. We briefly alluded to how long it takes to get back to Earth, but even um, light can only travel so fast. So imagine you're on Mars and you have a catastrophic um, event like a massive hemorrhage. You need to be able to deal with that in real time, in situ, because um, depending on the conjunction yes. of the planets, you have a three to 23 minute one way communication delay. So at the worst, it can be 46 minutes before you have a full round way, two way conversation. And um, so these are all considerations for um, for the exploration class missions um, as we go forward. Yeah, that's uh... So that's a long time to get advice, I suppose. Yeah, as you say, it's it's all uh, making sure you've uh, accounted for all those eventualities, hopefully before you before you set off and things. Um, so I guess we're kind of coming coming to the end end now. But I suppose, what advice would you have for anyone listening who um, sort of wants to get involved in in uh, space medicine and find out a bit more? And have you got any tips or suggestions for that? Oh gosh, yeah. Um, this is. Space medicine community um, is one of the best communities out there. People are so passionate. They're smart. It's so welcoming. Um, I think the first first uh, step to entry is come to conferences, um, especially in the era of COVID. You can attend a lot of these conferences virtually. Um, so the Aerospace Medical Association Conference, um, the World Extreme Medicine Conference, um, the International Astronautical Congress, these are all great first steps. Um, you know, it's read up about space medicine. There's some great, uh, great summary papers out there, whether it was in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, in, in nature. Um, it's just, it's so fascinating. It's so fun. If you're interested, um, come join us. It's a wonderful community. 
Yes, that sounds like a, a great, great invitation. And I suppose for you, Shona, what are your future plans? Oh What's gosh! On the radar, I saw I saw an exciting uh, video uh, of you driving a Land Rover through the through probably the the Mars desert actually, um, which was very cool actually, um, with the sort of some of the cool things you've been up to. But uh, what's next? Yeah. Oh gosh, there's so much on the horizon, um, and it's there. There's a lot of fun stuff. So um, I do clinical work, I do research, I do operational, and I do um, uh, entrepreneurial work. So um, and they're all related to space medicine. Um, so with my with my the companies I work with, developing VR um, and AR applications for space medicine and medical training and procedural guidance. Um, with one of the other companies I work with, um, developing a medical um, research platform as well as operations for artificial gravity environments. Um, on the operational side with Possum, we, you know, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful community in which to test out um, safety um, protocols as well as testing the suit. And then, you know, it's contributing to the body of knowledge and research along the way. And hopefully someday get to space. Yes, fingers crossed. That would be uh, be super cool. Um, yes. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been great to chat. Um, I feel that we could chat about space uh, for for such a long time. There's a, we've only scratched the surface, and it's kind of been a whistle stop tour. But I found it really interesting. Um, so thanks very much for joining me. And um, yeah, I hope it's uh, so. It's only what it's eleven eleven fifteen. Is it where you are now? Yes, it is. It's uh, still still lots of daylight left. Still got the rest of your day ahead. Well, take care and thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure to be here. If you've enjoyed listening to our podcast, then check out our website, www.thewildernessmedic.com. If you're interested in being a guest on a future episode or writing a blog for us, then do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media. Until next time, take care.